0: All right, brothers and sisters, uh, last week we read the beginning of chapter 21 from Matthew about the triumphal entry, and we explained that the reason it's called triumphal entry is because his his entry into Jerusalem, his procession into Jerusalem, uh, sort of shadows, copies the form of a Roman triumphus, a, a Roman triumphal entry that... They would proceed into a, a place after they'd conquered it. And so Jesus, he mounts a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And, and he's declaring himself to be king, um, but his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And he doesn't come in pomp and, and, and majesty. He comes on a beast of a burden. And so he's indicating that he's a humble king. And his kingdom is is a humble kingdom. And so it kind of subverts the expectations of all those who are wanting the glory now. But in keeping with the concept of a triumphus. In which the, the Roman victors would enter and then proceed to the temple. We see Jesus proceed straight to the temple itself. And so... Um, what Matthew does here is Matthew picks up the next day. Uh, understand here that in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, if you lay out all the gospels and, and do the whole chronological thing, this took place the next day. So if you read Mark chapter 11, 11, uh, what he records is that Jesus enters Jerusalem And he goes into the temple. And it says he looks around at everything. So Jesus is in the temple the the evening of his entry into Jerusalem. And he's looking around. And then it says, and being late in the day, he returned with the twelve to Bethany. And the next morning, he comes back into town, goes straight to the temple... And that's where verse 12 picks up. So what happens is Jesus comes into town. He goes into the temple and he looks around at everything. He sizes it up. And he doesn't take rash action. He reflects on it. He takes a night to think about it. The son of God took a night to think about it. Oh, woe to us. Who won't take some time to think about it? But anyway, verse 12 then picks up the next morning after Jesus comes back into the temple. And we read this And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage of scripture, for teaching us about your own heart of what's important to you and what should be important to us, for teaching us about your authority Lord, grant that we would not be found to worship you vainly. Grant that we would rejoice at true worship whenever and wherever it's offered. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. All right, so we come now to the cleansing of the temple. This... Passage is found not just in the three synoptic gospels, but it's also found in John, making it something that's recorded in all four gospels. Now, right out of the gate, uh, there's there's a debate that rages because you see in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple is located here during so-called Holy Week. It's one of the first things he does when he comes into Jerusalem. But if you've ever read the Gospel of John, where's the cleansing of the temple located? In chapter two, at the beginning of his ministry. And so there's a debate. Did Jesus cleanse the temple two times? Or, or did John who who by all accounts john 's gospel is unique and he 's not writing a a chronologically linear gospel did, did he choose to highlight this near the start of his gospel so as to sort of set the scene for, the, for for the for the confrontational relationship Jesus had with the establishment that's that's the debate. I fall on the side that I believe this is actually recording. Two cleansings of the temple. And, and here's why briefly. This is not a matter of orthodoxy, okay? If you disagree with me, it's okay. But, but here's why I think there were two. First of all, it is true that while it is true that Jesus spent most of his ministry in Galilee, at the very beginnings of his ministry, he starts out down in Judea and it's not until John gets arrested that he then says, I'm out of here and he, and he goes up to Galilee. So he starts down in Judea and would have had proximity to uh, the temple in Jerusalem. But what Jesus says, the means he employs, the reaction of the officials, it's different. So, Read John 2's account later and then here, and you'll see that what Jesus does, what he says, and, and how the leadership responds is, is different than here. So what I think happened is essentially this. Jesus goes in at the start of his ministry and sees corruption, and he does something about it, and it sets the tone for the religious establishment, and, and they, they hate it. He leaves He does three years of ministry. And now he's declared himself the Messianic king, the son of David. He's performed three years of ministry, three years of teaching the people, preaching in in every context miracles, signs, wonders, the I am statements, all of it. Three years. And he comes back to the temple to check it out. Has it had any effect? And that's why he sizes it up the evening of his triumphal entry. And the next day he goes back in and he pronounces his judgments. So I think there were two cleansings of the temple. If you don't agree, that's okay. But I think that's why there are two. But what we see here in this passage is, is this picture of how they have this highly industrialized, commercialized religion establishment. I mean, it, it's a full-blown operation they have going on here. And, and, and they think or they profess that they're doing all this unto the Lord for God's glory, but yet their hearts reveal that they're just far from God. In fact, they're not only far from God, but they're hostile to God. And and, and this passage shows us what the Lord himself rightly expects and desires. I mean, what we see here is Jesus is passionate About God's holiness. This is the only time, the other time I would say is John 2, where he's cleansing it for the first time, that Jesus uses what we would call violence, physical force. And it's in the context of defilement in the temple. Jesus is passionate about God's holiness. But he's, he, it's not just holiness in the abstract. He's passionate about the holiness of the place because he's passionate about worship. That's why in John 4, the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in what? Spirit and in truth. And the time is coming when you will worship no longer on this mountain or where? In Jerusalem. Which is right where he's standing now. He's passionate about worship. He's he's passionate about welcoming those who come to him. And about removing the roadblocks that otherwise would keep people from coming to him. So what we see here is this 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 heart of the Son of God for promoting and encouraging the worship of people. And we see where this runs afoul of the establishment. So the first thing I want to point out to you here from this passage is the expectation of holiness. If you look at Bottom line, God is holy, and where he is, is holy. Look with me, please, at verse 12. Y'all have it? Check this out. And Jesus entered the temple, and right after that E at the end of temple, you'll see a little superscript. In my Bible, it's a letter five. Follow that letter five down to the footnote, and what does the footnote say? Some manuscripts add of God. All right. Who here... Don't raise your hands for real because I don't want you to feel embarrassed, but there's no shame. Who here uses the King James or the NKJV? If you're using that that family of scriptures, yours is the some other manuscripts add of God. You see the entire... This is where I kind of chuckle at the way... Uh, translation committees will sometimes put the footnotes. Some manuscripts say of God. Some as in, no, oh, there's just a couple. No, it's the entire Byzantine textual family. Probably 55% of all of our texts we have. All right. All that to say, some of your Bibles reads, he entered the temple of God. Now, what's the big deal? why Why do our Bibles not have it? Well, this would be the only time that the temple in Jerusalem is ever referred to in the New Testament as the temple of God. Every other place, it's just referred to as the temple. And because of that, the people on the translation committee say, well, since it's Since scribes are prone to adding details, not taking details away, therefore, since this is an an anomaly passage where it would be the only place in the Bible where it says temple of God, chances are a scribe just added of God at the end. Okay, and that's the decision they've made. But to let you know that there's a textual basis for saying of God, they include the footnote. And I think this actually matters in this case. I think this is a time where the KJV and its textual family gets it right. Because this is the only time it's referred to as the temple of God. Now, just referring to it as the temple conjures up one set of ideas and assumptions and connotations. But when you say the temple of God. And you're employing the genitive case to say this temple belongs to God. This is, this is God's place. Immediately you are you, you, you have a set of ideas about what you should then expect to find in God's place. And then those set of ideas are immediately dashed by what you actually find taking place there. So I believe the correct textual reading is the King James reading of Temple of God. And we learned that the temple, the temple is holy because of God's presence there. And when, when you think of the connotations and expectations that you should have when you think of a holy place, what comes to mind? And I want to encourage you, seriously, take out your pen on your notebook and write down for a few seconds some adjectives, some descriptors. And if you don't know what an adjective is, talk to your, the homeschool mom sitting to your left or right, or, or, or public school teacher, uh, or, or private school teacher, your teacher sitting to your left and to your right, about when... When you think of holiness and, and a holy place, what comes to mind? Reverence? Awe? Joyful? Songs? What, what comes to mind? And imagine now that you've taken a few seconds to write some adjectives. That you're Jesus. Or or, or you're with Jesus, I should say. You're with Jesus, and you step into that scene. And what you have are 3,000 bleating, braying sheep, donkeys, oxen, chickens, pigeons, goats, cows, people milling around trying to herd their animals, all the noises the animals make all the smells they make, the the various competing vendors hawking out. It's contrary. They had a pretense of holiness, but what they had in that temple space was was a bunch of concentric spheres where you could go and, and, and one group could thus pass no further. And, famously the the outermost place was the court of the Gentiles. And it was the biggest and quite frankly it's right here that they've set up their market. They decided if it's good enough for Gentiles it's good enough for the animals. And inside that sphere you had the court of the women where Jewish women and children could go, but no further. And then you had where Jewish men could go. And by men, they mean anybody who's bar mitzvahed. And then, of course, they had the place for the priests and then the holy of holies where only the high priest could go. And they, they accorded holiness in terms of geographical distance From the holy of holies, with each concentric sphere getting holier and holier, rather than with the work of the place, what is to be occurring here? Who is to be acting here, rather than uh, this line here? This concentric notion of holiness led to a defilement of the entire edifice, And so we see that what they had essentially done by their hard-hearted commitment to tradition, to nationalistic notions of salvation, of messianic hope, their relegating of God's word to a significantly subordinated status, what they happened there is a heart of darkness. And so Jesus finds that this place has become essentially the second point, a criminal hangout. When he shows up, he finds this loud commotion. It's like the stockyards, animal selling and buying. And it's taking place right where the Gentiles are supposed to be worshiping. And this practice we're all sure, probably started as a way to offer convenience. Ostensibly, it started from good motives, I guess. I mean, pilgrims are coming a long, long way. Let's say they're coming from Rome, and they got to offer sacrifice. Are they seriously going to herd sheep and goats for 1,500 miles across no. That's, so what they would, they were offering a service where they would, for a fee, give you an animal that's certified clean. And so for that fee, you could avoid all that hassle and just come, get your animal, hand it over to the priest, sacrifice, bada bing, bada boom, you've done your duty. And when they say that it was certified clean, I chuckle because I remember in the Army, every soldier's worst, oh, is clearing CIF. Where you get your gear, CIF, Central Issue Facility. It's where you go to get all your stuff, your, your rucksack, your helmet, your, everything. And when you leave a given base, you've got to turn it back in. And it, it, you can't leave, until they've cleared off that you've turned everything back in. And they want it cleaner than you got it. And so cleaning your TA-50, which is the term for the gear you've been issued, cleaning your TA-50 is a major chore. But most bases have a TA-50 cleaning service. (laughs) Where... You you don't need you don't need to use the service. You can do it yourself, but then you're going to be subject to the scrutinizing eye of every single GS three level employee working at the CIF facility, and any one of them can say ah uh, not clean enough, and you got to go back and try again. Or for the low fee of twenty five dollars. You just hand us your TA-50 and we'll take care of it. Guess what most soldiers do. (laughs) Right? So this is what I'm thinking when I hear this, oh, certified clean. (laughs) That They mean ceremonially clean. Because think about how all the times the Old Testament prophets excoriate them for offering unclean animals. But these are certified clean animals. Some people mistakenly think that what's going on here is price gouging or corrupt business practice. That's why the, that's why the, the term robber is here. No, that, that's an unfortunate translation. The word translated robber just means criminal. And really it is used most of the time in most other Greek literature to refer to insurrectionists. Note that Jesus isn't just throwing out the sellers. And the money changers, the buyers. And who's the buyer? Ostensibly, it's the worshiper. Because they're there just to do a transaction. Worship has become a transactional act. And it's taking place, all this commotion, all this nonsense is taking place right where the Gentiles are to worship. And Jesus then in verse 13 says uh, this. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What Jesus is doing in verse 13 is combining two passages from the Old Testament prophets. And these verses together show us the heart of God. Oftentimes you will hear people say the Lord's house is a house of prayer. Indeed, it is. He's quoting from Isaiah 56. And I want to read to you the relevant section. Isaiah 56 is this beautiful promise in verses 1 through 8 of salvation for foreigners. And here's Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And here's the part Jesus quotes. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So, When Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer, he's calling to mind this. And it's not accidental that he says that because this is taking place right there where they had allotted the Gentiles to worship on the absolute fringes of the temple grounds. Even though in Isaiah we're told, you'll have a place in my walls, and yet they're pushed to the outside and and they are regarded and recounted as, as, as no more significant than the sheep and the oxen and the goats and the cows, the thousands of animals, rabbinical sources tell us, that milled about that space. In other words, the people of God had no regard for those who were seeking the Lord. They... They had fallen to the mindset that unfortunately I would say so many churches have fallen. Where, where, where they've become so nationalistic in their thinking that if you're not one of them, if you're not, if you're not from that ethnicity, we're not gonna throw you out the door, maybe, but we don't really care that you're there. There's Dutch churches, there's German churches, there's Korean churches, there's American churches, there's there's the, the, the Brazilian churches. There's, the, there's Mexican churches. There's, and, each, and everyone is tempted at some degree to say those who are not of us are at best on the periphery. At best. And Jesus wants to be clear that he wants his house to be for all peoples. And thus they should be welcome. But then there's the second part. He calls it a den of robbers. And he's citing there from the next prophet in the Old Testament after Isaiah. He's citing from Jeremiah chapter 7. And and, and he's referring to the vanity, the absolute vanity of appealing to the temple, of, of coming in there and ostensibly raising their hands and praising the Lord. Meanwhile, their lives are just wretched, debauched godless. Here's what he says. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And then the Lord pronounces judgment. So what he's saying is that this house has become the hangout for a bunch of lawless criminals who think that by... Coming here and and going through their motions and doing their transactional thing, keeping their national heritage or whatever, that somehow God is pleased. It is the epitome of notional, nominal, vain worship. It's what happens when you put liturgy above the heart. a den of insurrectionists the people charged with the care and the maintenance and the and facilitating the worship of the lord is compared by our savior to be a bunch of insurrectionists isn't that ironic and even more ironic about 3 decades later in AD 66 The Jews revolt against Rome and they push them out. Most of the Jewish leaders were not stupid. They knew that Rome would come back. So they started preparing defenses. In AD 68, the Zealots, that political party that you read about, Simon the Zealot, that political party that was hard right and anybody who wasn't as right as them were were liberals. colluders with Rome. They feared that the high priest was in negotiations to make peace with Rome because, you know, the high priest didn't want his whole country to be destroyed. So in AD 68, the zealots stormed the temple, murdered the high priest and most of the priests there in the temple and made it their hangout, made it their base of operations uh, until Rome destroyed them two years later. It was the event that the early church understood as the abomination of desolations that led Christians to flee. And thus, when Rome finally destroyed Jerusalem in 70, there was not a single Christian in town. So when Jesus metaphorically calls them insurrectionists here, 30 years later, it's literally a den for insurrectionists but then he cleanses the temple. And here's the funny thing. They thought of a cleansed temple in terms of bleached walls, disinfected surfaces, pristine gold, brass, bronze, silver, shiny candelabras, incense holders. Instead, what are you left with at this point? Jesus has knocked over tables. You're left with The dung of countless animals, the hay, the feed, it's a mess. But yet, two groups come to him. This is amazing, right here. If you flip back to Matthew, and I just flipped away. Ah, Okay, good. And it says in verse 14 And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. In the temple. And remember, we talked about this last week, the formula, the blind and the lame, isn't accidental. The reason it doesn't say the blind and the sick or the, or the demon, the blind and the lame is because from the days of David, the blind and the lame had been kept at bay. They had been unwelcomed, unwanted, undesired. But yet now they freely flow into Jesus because the impediments and the obstacles to their coming have been removed. And they come to him to have their needs met. And he meets them. And the children, they also come. Those who are likewise kept at bay because they were considered to be just a burden. And he receives their praise and they sing his praise. And this is just a bridge too far for the religious leaders. Can you hear what they're saying? And Jesus replies, yes. And here's what I love. To, to justify what they're saying, he quotes to them Psalm 8 too. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So to to justify him receiving the praise of these children, he cites to them Psalm 8.2. Well, Psalm 8.2 is a song about the praise that's offered to God. So what we see here is that now the one whose temple this is has come to his house. And it's an implicit claim to divinity. It's right for these kids to praise me. Why? Well, here's a psalm that it's right to praise God. He's right to purge his temple because it's his temple. He's right to cast judgment on this estab, all the stewards that he'd left in charge because they had failed. Now, In the next couple chapters, he's going to tell us what's going to happen in the near term from from him to the temple. But here's the important thing. The temple that stood in Jerusalem back then served a unique role in salvation history. But that was part of the old covenant. And the old covenant was rendered obsolete and it was fading away and the temple is no more because the covenant with which it was so intricately connected is is no more and instead we are in the new covenant and the apostle paul tells us in 1 corinthians 3 16 and 17 do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 2 5, that we're living stones being built into a great spiritual house. Okay. We now are the temple, we're God's temple. Remember those adjectives that I told you to write down that should describe something that's holy? Because it says right here, for God's temple is holy, and you're that temple. So you are holy. Those adjectives, do they describe you? Praise the Lord. We have the grace of sanctification that is conforming us progressively into the image of Christ. None of us are perfect, but, but do you understand that we have been declared and made the temple of God for a purpose, that people should see in us a place, a people they could come to to, to be welcomed for those who are seeking the Lord that we tolerate differences, that we tolerate ages, that we don't keep people at arm's bay because we want to welcome people into the household of God that they might worship him in the splendor of holiness. A new temple, that's us. What does the Lord find when he comes and examines? Does he find a vain, nominal show going on in your life, in my life? Or does he find a heart that beats and flows and burns with what drives him? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for pronouncing judgment against vain, nominal, empty, Worship. Grant that we would have hearts that are passionate for holiness, passionate for people coming to you, passionate for your name to be called upon by everyone, whether they're the haves or the have-nots. Grant that we would be faithful and not like the leaders of the religious establishment then be nothing more than Rebels and insurrectionists occupying a place. Help us to be faithful. Thank you for sending your spirit. It's in your name we pray, O oh Lord. Amen.